So there are uh, a few things that I want to uh, bring to your mind today. I just want to thank to everyone who brought food this, this morning, and we had a lot more brought outside and other times throughout the week. If you didn't bring some today, you forgot, or you intended to, or you'd like to bring some, we will take it any time. You can just drop it off at the church office. Next Sunday, we'll be, again, outdoors at 845 in here and streaming at 11, and Sunday school at 945. Next Sunday also is the first Sunday of Advent, and so we will be lighting candles and, and uh, thinking about our preparing once again for the coming of Christ. And uh, we want to thank you for just all of the ways in which you are engaging and participating in the life of the church. Let me give you just a couple of moments to stand and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship. Those of you who are streaming, maybe take advantage of this moment to write a note or send a text to someone of encouragement. Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect you have seen the studies that uh, people are, are publishing about how tired and weary people are right now. I've come to realize I don't need a study to tell me that, and I suspect you don't need one either. You know, as we, as we make our way through this COVID time, however, whatever that is and however long it goes, uh, I think all of us are getting weary. But the reality is we were wrestling with weariness before COVID. We were wrestling with, with a sense of, of being worn out and tired because it is not just something that happens when there is a, a pandemic. It is the way we tend to shape our lives. Now, there's a certain amount of humanness in, in terms of getting weary, and Jesus gets weary, and that's why we need rest and things, but there is a, there's sort of an inner sense of just being worn down that can come to us. And it's most tragic when we feel like maybe it's some part of contributing to that is being a disciple of Jesus. And if we come to the place of saying, it feels like being a disciple of Jesus, it feels like being a Christian is wearing me down, then I think we're in a bad place. Because... We weren't redeemed to be worn down. Jesus says to his disciples, take my yoke upon you and learn of me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And there's something, I'm sure there are a lot of contributing factors to why we might feel sometimes that our journey with Jesus is wearing us down. But I think one of the reasons might be the myth that I want to talk about today. And the myth is this, that life is about living for God. Now, you might be scratching your head and saying, wait a second, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, I'll I'll get into the nuance of that in a minute. But I think one of the places where we see Jesus addressing that subtle myth is in the story from Luke chapter 10. When you get to this story, there's there's a lot going on here, and it is very complicated. But a part of this is that what Mary is doing, really, her behavior is scandalous. In a culture in which, in which women have a place and men have virtually every place, Mary has intruded into that male space. She is, we, when we think of this story from our perspective, we think, well, isn't that nice? Mary's just sitting around in the group listening to Jesus, just like all the other men and women are listening to Jesus. But that's not the case. More than likely, Mary is the only woman sitting, listening to Jesus. And Luke says that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is the same language that that Paul uses in Acts 22, uh, describing his upbringing, and that being a Pharisee and learning to be a rabbi, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That's what you do to learn how to be a rabbi. This is what you, when a rabbi is teaching and he's training people about being fo- his followers and, his, and to follow in his footsteps, this is what you do. You sit at their feet. And Mary is doing what only men are supposed to do. And Martha is criticizing her for that. Now, you also get a sense of this is sort of who Mary is because in John chapter 12, you have another story of Jesus, again, being at the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And we find here that in this story that he, John describes for us the scene. He says, Martha is in the kitchen serving. She's serving the food to them. And Mary has a jar of perfume that she pours over Jesus' feet. And Lazarus is sitting at the table eating with Jesus. And I read that story and I thought, you know, things haven't changed for 2,000 years. The women are doing the work and things and the men are sitting around the table eating. And, you know, it, it feels like that's the way that, that's that culture's mindset. That's how they do things. That's the way it's supposed to be. And here is Mary intruding into that. And when, after she pours this whole bottle of perfume on Jesus... Judas is upset with her because he should have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. Both of these times when Mary wants to get close to Jesus, she's criticized, but she's not criticized for doing what is spiritual. She's criticized for doing something that shatters the cultural norms. And the question in my mind is, where does she learn that it was okay to do that? When did Mary pick up what other people miss, that it's okay for her to be close to Jesus? It's okay for her to break those norms. And the only answer I can come up with is because she learned it from Jesus. Something in the way Jesus teaches, in the way Jesus treats her, 
she's welcome here. And you know, in this story, Jesus does not in any way say, Mary, you shouldn't be here. It's really the, the, the working out of the conversations that Jesus has often with the religious leaders who are so worried about the cultural norms, and Jesus keeps shattering them. It's what Paul's describing in Galatians 3 when he says, there is no longer male or female or Jew and Gentile or slave and free. We are all one in Christ. And Paul just simply is describing what Jesus does, shattering those norms. And for Mary, it's a blessing. For Martha, it's a problem. Kenneth Bailey says that, he, he says, I, I think the problem here for Martha is that she's worried about what the implications are of Mary doing this. Because here is Mary intruding into the world that's reserved for men, and in her mind, she's thinking, what's everybody going to think? How's everyone going to treat us? How is Mary ever going to find a husband when she acts like this? What's going to happen? And she's troubled by this. She can't see it. I think Martha is also, out of that, also frustrated by the fact that Mary shouldn't be breaking the cultural norms and being where men are supposed to be. Mary should be doing what the culture tells us to do, and that is in the kitchen with me. And Martha has, has created this huge meal, and she's done all these things, and now she's irritated and frustrated about it. I have a feeling, I mean, I'm trying to picture this scene. Jesus is probably sitting, and the people are around him, and he's in the middle of teaching, and here comes Martha bursting into the room saying, Jesus, interrupting Jesus, which I think takes a lot of gall in the first place, interrupting Jesus and saying, hey, talk to Mary, she's not where she's supposed to be. I suspect that before Martha finally interrupted Jesus, there was a lot of noise in the kitchen. A lot of banging of pots and pans and slamming of doors, trying to get the ten Mary's attention to, hey, I need help in here. Stop doing what you're not supposed to be doing and come in here where, where you're supposed to be. But there is a sense in which Martha is, is, Martha's not doing anything wrong. In fact, I suspect when you see these two stories, both in Luke 10 and John 12, in both cases, you see Martha serving. I suspect that's her love language. This is how Martha communicates love, by serving, by doing for people. And it's a good thing. Doing for Jesus, doing things for other people is important. It's necessary. You could almost make the case that the entire letter of James is calling people who don't want to do things to do things. James addresses the fact that there are people who say, oh, you know what, I just like sitting and thinking about Jesus. And, and doing stuff sort of messes with that. And James says, get over that. Because you need to be doing things too. I find it fascinating the story before this one is the Good Samaritan. And here you have a story that Jesus says, where the, Jesus tells the story where the two people who are going to the temple to think about God, and the one person 
who stops and helps the person in need. And Jesus says, who was right? The person who was doing something. There's absolutely nothing wrong with what Martha is doing. You'll notice Jesus doesn't initiate this conversation. Jesus doesn't stop what he's doing and go into the kitchen and say, Martha, what are you doing in here? Stop doing all this stuff. Come out here with everybody else. No. Martha's the one that initiates it. And it's out of that that Jesus says, look, you need to realize that what you're doing is fine, but it's your mindset. I mean, the reality is both extremes of only doing and the other extreme of only sitting and, and learning and not letting it do it, have nothing to do with how we, what we do with our lives, both extremes are not what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for the tension of the two together. Because that's, that's really the call of the gospel. And Jesus, I, I have a feeling that we tend, if we're going to err, most of us are going to err on the side of doing. Because that's measurable. We like to measure things. We like to know how we're doing. I, I've accomplished these, this many things today. I've been able to do these things. You can see it. You can feel it. You can touch it. And, and, that's, and we like that. And that, that, that has a value to it. But Jesus keeps telling us the only accurate measuring stick is love. Love that comes out of your being, out of your heart. That's what intrigues me about Jesus' response to both Mary and Martha. He doesn't say to Mary, Mary, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. This is just for the men. You go, go do something else. No, he welcomes her with open arms. And I don't really get the feeling that Jesus is scolding Martha as much as he's just trying to help her see where she's gone away, gone aside. To correct her. It's, it, it's an act of love of Jesus to say, look, you don't have to do all of this. Just take a deep breath and step back and think about what's happening. Most of the religions of the world, some might argue all the religions of the world, are about obligation and duty. Are you fulfilling your obligation? Are you carrying out the duty that's been assigned to you? This is how you have value and worth by your obligation and your duty. And quite frankly, the church has a long history, and the contemporary church has wrestled, wrestles with this too, of sending the message to people that your value and your worth isn't what you do. And we, we struggle with that. And we wrestle with understanding the gospel that it is not centrally about what we do, it's about who we are. And so Jesus responds in love. And Jesus turns on its head this whole idea that, that religion and, and discipleship is about what we do. He says in John 15, he says to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. Because it's not about a master-slave relationship. It's about a friendship, a parent-child relationship even. Brother-sister relationship. 
It's not about what you do. It's about the relationship that you have with the Father, out of which our doing flows. You think about people who are servants. You think about the kind of sort of employee-employer kind of relationship. What are we thinking? We're thinking about when we're on the clock and when we're off the clock. If you think about people who have been, lived their lives enslaved, what's the goal, the dream? It's to freedom. It's to get away from that. But when you're a child and you're in a loving relationship, a loving family, it, it's, it's ongoing. And it's building that relationship and it's growing that relationship through the ups and the downs of it. But you're connected by the relationship of love. And that's our struggle. Somewhere deep inside of us, I suspect that it is the result of, of our sinful natures, but somewhere deep inside of us, we buy into the, to the myth that life is about living for God. It's about duty. It's about obligation. And we believe that our worth and our value is primarily about what we do for God instead of who we are as God's beloved children. I think that is Martha's struggle. What is it she says to Jesus? Jesus, don't you see everything I'm doing for you? You get the feeling she's almost blaming Jesus. You know, she's, she's upset with Mary, but like most of the time, when we're upset with someone else, if we, if we pull, peel back the onions, onion skin far enough, we probably come to the place where some point, somewhere along the line, we're angry with God. And I think Martha is upset that Jesus isn't doing something about this, that he's not taking care of what Mary's not doing, and that he's not acknowledging what she's doing. Somewhere along the line, she has come to think that her value and worth to Jesus is not just her love language, it's, it's where everything about her existence rests. You see that in the, in the religious leader who comes to Jesus that then spurs on the story of the Good Samaritan. He comes to Jesus and, and asks Jesus about, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God, fill your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it says in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. He wanted Jesus to know he was righteous. He wanted Jesus to know how holy he was. And so he asked, so who's my neighbor? It's that question that people ask. You know, you've been in a class where someone asks a question, not because they're curious about the answer, but they want everybody to know how smart they are. Now, I was never smart enough to ask those kinds of questions in class, but I've been in classes where that's happened. Actually, I'm sure I have asked those questions before. There's something in us that wants everybody to know, look how much I know. And the man comes to Jesus and says, look how much I know, look how great I am. And Jesus turns the whole thing on its head. Because it's not about our value. Our value and worth is not in what we do. It's in who we are. No wonder we're weary. We're worn out 
from giving and giving and giving and doing and doing and doing because somewhere we think if we just do enough but something but in the back of our minds we know hey I'm doing all of this and I still don't feel worthy now I can go to the other extreme as well if you feel like you, you can never do enough then sometimes we just quit and we give up That's the student that comes to the teacher and says, so how little do I have to do and still pass this course? Or the athlete that comes to the coach and says, how little do I have to train and still get to play? Imagine a child coming to their parent and saying, now look, how little do I have to put into this relationship for us to still have a relationship? No, that's not, that's just, the complete wrong perspective, right? It's, it's the relationship. Phil Vischer, who is one of the founders of VeggieTales, says that as he studied the scriptures, he came to realize that, that he had been believing a, a dangerous cocktail, he said. It was a cocktail mis, mix of a little bit of the gospel, a little bit of the Protestant work ethic, and a little bit of the American dream. And he said what he came to realize is that, that he was worshiping equal parts of Jesus, Ben Franklin, and Henry Ford. I think we get that. I think we understand that dilemma. But that's not the gospel. That's not what we were created to be. I love what Erwin Ince writes about in one of his books. He says that, he's talking about creation, and he says, you know, we weren't created out of necessity. We were created out of love. And he goes on to talk about beauty in creation. So you look around at creation, he says, so much beauty in creation is unnecessary. We don't need thousands of of different kinds of flowers and, and, and bugs and insects and birds and fish. We don't need all of that. We don't need all the beauty that God created. We don't need the topography that inspires us. We don't need all of that. A lot of that isn't necessary. But God didn't create it because it was necessary. He created it because he loves beauty. Because he loves to create. Including you and me. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I keep coming back to the story of the professor that said to his seminary class, you ought to get up every morning and give thanks to God that you are unnecessary. And the class looked back and said, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. I know that all of us are replaceable. I know that, I understand that, but shouldn't we be necessary? And he said to them, no, you're too valuable to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. Because you think about it, if your value and worth is because, of, because you are necessary, what happens when you no longer are necessary? If our value and worth isn't what we do, what happens when we can't do things anymore? I think there's a fear of that in the back of our minds. 
And that's why our identity is not in what we do, it's in who we are. Children of God. And you see, one of the biggest problems with this is not just what it does for us, but the reality is our our understanding, our, our mindset about a relationship with God directly impacts our mindset about our relationships with each other. If we think that our relationship with God is rooted in what we do and what we accomplish and how successful we are, then all of life in our relationships with other people becomes a competition. We have to be better, faster, stronger, wiser. We have to make sure everybody knows we have to make sure we're always right, and we have to make sure everybody knows we're always right. We have to always win. We can't, we can't mess with things like humility and risk and giving ourselves away because that eats away at the very core of what we believe about our value and worth. No wonder we're so divided. No wonder we're fighting with each other. No wonder people look at the church and they don't sometimes don't see what they were hoping to see. We don't have to be in competition with each other. We're beloved children of God. And we can listen to each other and we can care for each other and we can give ourselves away to each other because we know who we are in Christ. And that changes everything. Brendan Manning says that that we have really before us the choice. We We can be agents of healing for people who are wounded, or we can be agents who wound people who need healing. And the difference is operating out of a spirit of fear or out of a spirit of love. The difference is believing that our value and worth is in what we do or in who we are. And again, it's not that what we do is inconsequential or unimportant. If our love language is doing, we ought to do but not because of that's where our value and worth lies, but because we know we're beloved children of God. And when we, and when we, the things that we do come out of that mindset, we keep doing it and we can do it with joy whether we get recognition or not, whether other people do it the same way we do or not. In one of his seedbed postings, J.D. Walt talks about his first, the first class of his first day in seminary. He went sitting in the class of Robert Mulholland, who for years was a phenomenal professor at Asbury Seminary. And he said, Dr. Mulholland stood in front of the class, he says, the most important decision you must make during your time here in seminary is this. Are you going to be 
Are you going to be people for Christ in the world? Are you going to be people in Christ? Are you going to be people for Christ in the world? Or are you going to be people in Christ for the world? Are you going to be people for Christ in the world? Or are you going to be people in Christ for the world? And he says, I'm here to help you learn how to be the latter. You know, John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, to those who believed in Christ, he gave the right, he gave the privilege, he gave the joy to become children of God. And that is what you are. And my prayer for us is that we will begin to understand that in deeper and deeper ways. And that we might find our joy and our life in Him. Holy Father, drive that truth that we're your beloved children deep into us. we might find rest in you and joy in you and joy in serving through your wondrous grace.